The business of operations management is difficult, particularly in large enterprises like banking, insurance, and other services companies with teams of hundreds and thousands around the globe. Now add in recent pandemic forcing the workplace to change forever. Managers and employees are under immense pressure to get work done, while also finding ways to balance performance and well-being. The complexity is building, and it can be difficult to find the answers. This podcast, AO On Air, partnered with ActiveOps, is designed to help identify areas that will help employees, managers, and senior leaders find solutions to the challenges within operations management. The future of work will take all departments, such as HR, IT, and ops, aligned along with a steady dose of innovation to succeed. We'll bring you topics, thought leadership, and simple plans to help lead your teams into the future of work. A hybrid work world that will learn from one another and truly act globally, breaking down the silos of older management models for new ways of working. Welcome to the journey. Now let's begin. Hello and welcome to AO on Air. My name is Michael Cups. I'm your host for this podcast and it's a podcast sponsored by ActiveOps. So welcome. Really excited about our, our visitor today. He's in our studio actually, but he doesn't live in Dallas. But welcome Kevin Evans, the CTO or Ch- Chief Technology Officer of ActiveOps. Welcome to Dallas. Thank you very much. You've been here probably longer than you wanted to be. It's been, yeah, this is week number three um, and it's, I'm looking forward to my own bed. Yes. Um, yeah, it's uh, heading that, home this coming weekend. That does matter. We can't feed you enough barbecue, or well, there's a limit to it. Maybe. There is a limit to the barbecue and the fried chicken and the, you know, <laughs> the vegetables that are sixty percent butter. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, welcome. Well, what we you know we talk about on this podcast a lot is operations management. And we have operations managers to uh, you know people at ActiveOps and some of our customers, some of our partners, and and really they talk about the operational side of it. But the tech piece is pretty pretty big. Uh, I actually did some research this morning, believe it or not, and I, I, I was reading a particular article published by J.P. Morgan, and it talked about Google and Amazon, or Alphabet, the parent of Google, spend roughly tw- ten, 12 to 20% of their operational expense on tech, but banks spend on average 29%, so quite a bit more, and there's more of them, and there's a lot bigger budgets and all that, so it's it's significant investment. And they've got the, the transformation stuff that's been going on for a long time. So you look at Google, Alphabet, you look at Amazon, they built platforms and they built that in the last, what, what, Amazon 2000, and 2000, 2001, they were kind of becoming a thing in the book market and then they moved into the platform play. But you look at most of the banks and they've been around since, you know, yeah. certainly the 16, 1700s and their IT is not that old, but it's been stuff that's grown with them. So there's a lot of that 29% is probably maintaining stuff that they wouldn't have chosen to put in if they want, if they had it. Right. Um, and you know, it's it's probably the biggest challenge that most of them are facing right now is how do they take all this stuff that's in disparate systems and different places and bring it together to run better yeah. um, and compete. And it's, it's interesting. I don't I don't have the stats, but if you look at things like Monzo, Starling, the challenger banks that have come up in the UK, their IT spend is, I, I would guess, and I'm guessing, but I would guess it's much lower because again, they're not building on top of a legacy. So. Right. They're investing in the new, and yeah. and and they don't have the. The, the the drag Baggage. behind it yeah yeah interesting so so when we think about operations at least I mean, most people think about people right people processing loans people adjusting claims when we move to the insurance market but the tech is kind of centerpiece there and and a lot of it is a core system and no doubt that that's important to process that transaction but there's so much around it right yeah and you look at so so actually, one of my first jobs, the, the first project I worked on was bringing in the euro. So we, we took out the Deutsche Mark for a big German bank and we brought in the euro. And the systems that we were using then 
ironically, we're addressing some of the same challenges now. How do we improve straight through processing? How do we you know, automatically check uh, receptions or sanctions checks and so on? And all those challenges are still around. The tools and the ways we're doing it have definitely moved on and people's expectations are different. It used to be if, again, I'm conscious I'm sitting in the States where your banking system is generally slower to do things like sending money. Um, but ours, people expect now money transfers to arrive literally by the time you finish pressing the button. Uh, and that is just those expectations have changed. So the, the roles of both the people and the tech in those operation spaces have, have shifted with it. Well, and, and, and that's an interesting point. It, it seems like that it's the, the fintechs that have pushed U.S. banks to make that instantaneous. I mean, Zelle and yeah. PayPal and all those, yeah. Yeah, I was talking to Spencer at the weekend, and you know they tried to send some money to one of their kids, and they sent it online. And the, the confirmation thing said the check will arrive in seven days. Yeah. So they've, they've electronically transferred money to their own kid, and it's going to turn up as a printed check. In the U.K., that just wouldn't, it just wouldn't fly. Yeah. And a yeah. bank that offered that as a service wouldn't, wouldn't survive. So they've got this, this tremendous imp- you know, um, sort of impetus to modernize and transform and offer better operations not necessarily faster not necessarily just more accurate but just better overall probably on a lower tco to cost to operate probably with reduced investment for each of those individual bits as they they're still spending that 29 percent, but there's more pieces of that to slice that pie into um and a huge chunk of that is people and you know again back from the late 90s we've been looking for technology ways that we can automate the routine so that people can focus on the complex yeah uh, and that that sort of pursuit continues yeah, and, and building on that from kind of routine to the complex, let's talk about operations. So operations probably had a rhythm before yep. the pandemic. Um, whatever, uh, there's so many stories about the pandemic. We all know that essentially operations went remote, and now they're considering some form of back to office, hybrid, et cetera. Yep. So where's technology fit into that? I think there's a couple of different angles on that. One is just enabling those Again, banks, insurance companies, which have a, you know, these big processes of actually quite sensitive data. It's somebody looking at your financial information. You don't necessarily want them doing that from their kitchen table. Um, but banks have had to adapt. We've had some of our clients, certainly when the pandemic hit, just did not have the infrastructure to, to get everyone to go work from home. And they had people almost dialing in in shifts to cover, you know, you have 20 minutes of VPN time. So there's been a real sort of core infrastructure shift, I think, to resilience, which used to be viewed as we have an office and a fallback office. And actually now that's that's shifted in the mindset of most of those big enterprises to how do we operate in a distributed model? And then that leads on to the follow-on question of if we can operate in a distributed model and actually our employees are just as productive at home and they're working quite happily from home and they don't have the commute costs and they get their evenings and their weekends back, it probably makes retention better. It's also slightly harder to upskill new people and it's slightly harder to build that camaraderie and bond. But there's a real sort of a balancing act there. But I think tech has has underwritten the ability for businesses to respond to that. And if you think, I was just chatting funny enough to an Uber driver the other day, just saying, you know, if you imagine 10 years ago, if this pandemic had hit, nobody would have worked from home. We would have either enforced yet to come into the office or businesses would have just closed. Yeah. Because they couldn't have gone home and, and done that work. So it's been really interesting to see almost the sort of taken for granted bits that sit under the hood enabling businesses like that. And then obviously selfishly there's companies like us that help with things like you used to be able to just see who was busy. You could look across the floor and see who was in and the management style that that, that engendered and the management style that, that that required didn't translate well to being at home with no visibility, but there's a whole slew of companies that are about visibility on home staff and ours as you know, happens to be in the, the sort of the operations niche in terms of equipping managers to see. Again, it's funny that sort of followed the trend for tech of 
how can we use tools to get visibility on assets in a, a different server room, in a different building, in the cloud, and how can we try, start trying to manage a disparate hybrid infrastructure? Yeah. We've started to push those same lessons into to ops. So it's been a really interesting shift, but I do, I, I sort of, I do sometimes stop and just think, if this had been 10 years ago, yeah. th- there'd have been no work from home. Yeah, exactly. I, and I haven't really thought about that. I think most people wouldn't because they they knew they could connect. They just didn't know how they would do it, and, yeah. and it forced them to do it. So, so that management piece that you just mentioned, though, do you do you think tech and that, that onboarding of new people? Do you think tech can play a role in in, in enhancing that, or you still you still think we've got to bring them to the office? Uh, so, I have a, I, I guess a, a personal opinion on this, which I think it's important to see people, but I do think. Particularly for me, I have a team in Australia, I have a team in South Africa, I have a team in the UK, I have one in Ireland, I've got one here in Dallas. My team works together as a global team and they've always worked with people who might have been in an office, but it wasn't necessarily the same office. Yeah. So I think for me, the the value in the, the congregation thing is, or perhaps a better way to word that would be the thing I don't want to see us go back to as a very personal thing, is people walked in in the morning, kind of went, hi, sat down, put on a pair of headphones, joined eight hours of calls, then took the headphones off and then left at the end of the day and said bye. And that was the interaction. Yeah. I think actually we've got an opportunity to do something that's a bit more yep. in, uh, bonding, for want of a slightly less fluffy word, yeah. um, but get people in and get them to have FaceTime together and so on. Yeah. And I think the, the tech around Teams and Zoom and all of those things that have enabled video calling to just be the, you know, be the norm. Yeah. We jump on a video call and now we don't think anything of it. But again, 10 years ago, it would have been, can we arrange a conference call and need a room booked with the, the conference yeah. equipment in there? You couldn't have had that sort of interaction that you get on a video call over the phone. Yeah. Um, so it, it's definitely helped. I think there's still questions we have yet to answer, and I'm sure there's SaaS companies springing up around kind of employee onboarding and how to how to make people bond. But it'd be interesting to see how companies like WeWork respond as well with sort of shared workspaces where actually it's not necessarily about bonding in your company. Yeah. But actually, it's about being in an environment of like-minded people who might work for a variety of companies. Yeah, um, almost that community that that we used to just—we all worked in a community, even if it wasn't us. It was yeah. a small community. Yeah. So you you mentioned tech there and emerging tech or startups maybe helping with that. But so the magic word these days or the golden golden egg is AI. Yeah. Right. Everything. Everybody's putting .AI on their URLs yeah. now, et cetera. So maybe we should have called this AI mm-hmm. on air. But so what do, what's your thoughts on AI and ML in, in operations particularly? Because I know it's a big topic. So I think there's there's a few big areas that AI and ML, and so you can kind of slice that into a few different areas. So machine learning and specifically the identification of patterns and processes and things, there's, there's a ton of that that can have value in ops by identifying things that wouldn't necessarily be obvious especially to new leaders, new managers. If you've worked in a field for 20 years, you have a gut feel. It's actually going to be really hard for us to have a supplant with AI because people are really good judges of complex problems and situations. But if you're newly promoted to a team leader and you don't have any real experience of doing that, the ability for us to detect patterns and tell you, hey, you know what, it's coming up to the third Friday of a month. And we don't necessarily know why you're going to be busier, but we know that you're always busy on the third Friday of the month. So there's a real thing there about not necessarily trying to identify the causes, although that might be an interesting exercise in and of itself, but being able to use ML to look at that data and draw out patterns like, um, there was a a fairly famous one about Walmart discovering that actually champagne sales around Super Bowl, all the stores would sell out of champagne. So everybody thinks of Super Bowl as being a beer weekend. Yeah. Uh, And actually the thing that was stopping champagne selling more around Super Bowl was a lack of champagne in stores. Turns out it's a really good time to buy champagne if you're a supermarket because nobody else is buying champagne. So they were able to put more champagne in the stores from picking out the data that showed that 
although the number wasn't high, the, the sale as a percentage of available stock was very high for that weekend. Who knows why they're drinking it? It might be right. tax day. It might be people yeah. not watching Super Bowl at all. It doesn't matter if you're trying to sell champagne. Put yeah. more champagne in the stores and it sells, and that's a win. So I think we can do a lot of that kind of stuff for ops people to, to identify patterns, to give them areas where we can show this is a thing that you need to respond to. And there'll always be a human element to that. We're a big believer as a business that we're not trying to replace the people. We're trying to inform people better so they can make better educated decisions. And we might make suggestions, a bit like yeah. Waze or Uber. You know, It'll suggest which way to go, but you can always pick a different route. And if you're a business that knows that you've been through an acquisition or you're about to go through some layoffs or whatever that, that context is that the AI won't know because it hasn't happened yet, there's, a, there's, a, there's still a really key bit there for people making decisions. But for us to be able to say, this is your likely volume, we can predict it better than most people can because yeah. we've got access yeah. to all of this data and we can see it holistically across an organization. That's, that, that's really important for us. And then the other thing around the AI is, can we use AI to not necessarily make predictions because that, that sort of overlaps with that, that previous point, but can we use AI to, to draw out ways that we can make things better? So identifying, for example, you might have a people in a commercial mortgage team who use a specific application and do a certain process, which might, it might be a different application than another one, but if we can identify that the process is very similar and that the steps they're doing and the outcome are similar, if I have a problem in my retail lending team because I'm short-staffed, Actually, knowing that I've got people over here who've never done that job before, but actually have already got 80-85% of the skills and we can bring them in, yeah. that sort of AI analysis of patterns and processes, I think will be quite transformative. Yeah. And I think in terms of you know, company vision for where we see it going, it, it's really all about that augmenting decisions and augmenting decision makers with better info that they wouldn't necessarily see or have called out. Yeah. But we can pick it out of the data and present it to you so that you can make good decisions from day one instead of having to build up that gut feel. Yeah. And, and do you, I, I wasn't anticipating asking this question, but I'm curious, what do you think about the buy versus build? So there's there's big companies that obviously have the wherewithal to go buy AI yeah. engines, but maybe vendors have a perspective that they couldn't have? I don't know. Yeah, I, I think the AI itself, and there's, you know, there's legions of AI research out there that will recoil in horror at what I'm about to say. AI, AI itself these days is actually not that, sim- it's not that complex to, to build in the sense that you can buy off the shelf. There's Watson, AWS has a, a machine learning AI stack, um, and Azure has its own AI machine learning stack in there. And you can relatively quickly put together AI ML solutions by kind of almost like Lego blocks. You can put yeah. something together and you can make a prediction. The, the nuance and the skill comes in understanding the data well enough to know how to tune what we call the, the features of a data set. So saying, prioritize this piece of data over this piece, or ignore this piece because it's not a good value for prediction, or I've identified that that correlates to the data, but it, it's a correlation, not a causation thing. So using that to predict isn't going to help because if the cause of that one goes away. So I think there is, and probably always will be, an area around, yes, you could build an AI capability and an AI capacity in, in your organization, especially if you're a big bank, and in fact most are already doing so but the the specialist knowledge about how to apply that to a specific problem set it, it's not a purely technology challenge it's about taking the technology and the domain knowledge and applying those together to come up with something that produces useful output yeah. um, and you know, I, do i do i think that the googles out there in the world are going to go out and, and buy a lot of their solution probably not because of the sheer size of their army but if you look at banks and insurance companies they're banks. They're, they're good at running banking operations, and they're good at running banking. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're specialist in our niche area or HR management or all those other areas where you've got 
specific players that come in well equipped and well well tooled to do it. Yeah, it, and that's that's interesting. So let let's take even a precursory step to that: the data, right? So so banks, insurance companies, big service operations in general, BPOs, whatever, have a ton of data. And there's probably a ton of data available to managers, but it, it strikes me interesting when I talk to managers that implement our solutions and they go, we just didn't see it this way. So that whole data collection area and, and maybe transformation of the data into insights, I mean, what's your view on this? So we, uh, and again, you, you know, we unashamedly we we have a place that we sit and we think we sit in this space and do do well so there's a, a bit of shameless self-promotion in here but we sure. we take the data that's around a business and we turn it into information and as you say most of the banks have enormous enormous quantities of data it it's all over the place it's been there since the 1960s on bits of paper and it's been digitized over time and you've got transaction history stuff that you could use to try and work out volumes and sizes and numbers of sanctions checks and so on but to actually present that to a manager especially one who's busy in the middle of an operations environment where they've got people leaning on them to kind of get everything out of the door to sift through that data is really difficult. So what we're seeing as a as a vendor, but also we as a business buy our own stuff as well. So we, we run our own business as well as selling stuff to other people to do theirs. It, what we're seeing is increasingly a drive towards a, a sort of a connected ecosystem of data and information so that all of that data becomes available at a point where it's useful and it's relevant. And that can be everything from connecting systems through to things like Power BI, SciSense, Tableau, and making available that data so you can do senior management dashboards and roll up stuff across an entire bank across multiple countries and continents. It could also be about taking some of the data that we've got around operations volumes and something as simple or as random as weather data and saying, actually, you're going to be busier on 401k rainy days yeah. People don't sit and do 401k planning, pension planning for the UK folks uh, on a sunny day. You go outside and you drink beer. Yeah. It's a rainy, miserable day. People sit at home. So if we can take weather data and try and put that in front of a manager, it's all about connecting those bits of data and making sure that applications and the sort of modern data ecosystem talks the same language, is easily accessible and so on. And we, again, as you know, that we've been through this sort of replatforming project yeah. to make our product really a first-class citizen in that space. So instead of the monolith that sits on a little island on its own and says we're experts in ops, we can help your operations managers with this data that they've got there, we can both push that data out to other parts of a, a company that it can be useful in, but also we can ingest it from other places so that we can improve our own forecasts. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's a whole bunch of APIs that sit under the hood that let us do that and make it easier to do so or easy to do so. But again, it's, it's really about driving that data itself actually isn't that useful it's information that helps you make a decision that's yeah. useful and the better the range of data that forms the information the better informed you are yeah but let's talk about i mean just put your cto hat on for a, for a minute and, and not that you didn't have it on the last five minutes but the i mean getting that data normalizing it and presenting it is not easy i mean and there's a lot of startups trying to do it but when you think about the complexity of the systems and the desktops and the people and all of that and back to that point about specialization and buy build and so on, and it's a very similar thing. So you know, we have a, a rich, fully featured API, and for the techies listening, you know, it's a yeah. it's a fully RESTful API. It, it works with all the same standards based development stuff that all the other developers in the world will be used to. So, from a technical implementation point of view, actually, it's pretty simple. The question always for me, and I, and I used to put the CTO hat on, but actually, fun enough for me, it's the it's the C rather than the T that makes it sometimes quite exciting around trying to solve some of these problems. It's not necessarily a technology problem for how do I link two things together. If you want to know, for example, 
how do I take data from my core line of business system that does transaction processing and I feed that into our control IQ platform. The API integration actually is relatively simple, but it's things like how do I deal with a user process to transaction that didn't exist over here? What's the exception flow around that and so on? Mm. And I think that's back to that startup thing. You're seeing companies that sort of API, API as a service, um, integration as a service operators who are trying to sit in that space and trying to ease some of those um, integration sort of pain points. But there's still at the end of it has to be an understanding of how do I take actually a bigger set of data now and turn it into something which is actionable. Um, and again, selfishly, when you look at our product, we take all sorts of bits of data and we present that in a way that we think it makes it easy for a team leader or a manager to digest, to make decisions there and then on the floor dozens of times a day. Uh, that That's the specialist knowledge that we add in how to consume the data. And similarly across, again, if we talk about a bank, the bank will have a financial operations pe- you know, team that will be looking at the bank's financial performance, reserves on hand and so on. And they'll know far more about that than than we could hope to but we can still help provide them with the data to make better decisions about that in terms of what's the outflow of funds, what's the likely transaction volume tomorrow. We don't necessarily even need to know the numbers of the, the values, but it's it's taking those areas of business-specific knowledge and then linking them with the techies to say we can we can link those systems together. What is it you're trying to get out of it? How do we shape that solution so that it gives the right people the right answers at the right time? And then, and this is where the CTO hat bit comes in, making sure that those systems make it as easy as possible and as standards-based as possible so that you're not doing what we all did 15 years ago in tech, which was build bespoke integrations between one product and another. And every time anything changed in one of them, it broke everything else. Now everybody wants either a sort of star topography where you go into an aggregator in the middle or everything is standards-based so that you can make changes safely. Okay. Well, good. So, so with with that, we've got, we've covered a lot of ground here, and I know we're bouncing around. But let me—you've decided to partner with Microsoft for for various reasons. Yeah. It's not that we that our customers don't work with AWS or Google, or, and we won't work with them. Well, of course, we will. But you've decided on the partnership with Microsoft for for, for various reasons. Could you enlighten us on that? Yeah, absolutely. So, I've I, again full disclosure. I've worked with Microsoft, not not for them, but with Microsoft for a number of years. Now, their partner program is. I, I think it's certainly the most developed out there in terms of the assistance that we can get from them. And that, that can be everything from getting a couple of partner technical specialists as your architect or whatever on a call when we've got questions and saying, we just want to bounce this around off you. What's the industry best practice? Where is this going? How do we get access to the partner technical specialists that are working with the big banking groups you know, so that we can understand where they're going? And that, that sort of interaction with them from a an architecture design point of view is is really priceless to them. But there's also a really well-developed transactable marketplace piece around the Microsoft partnership where an ISV partner like us can effectively publish through the marketplace. We can sell our offers into these big companies. There's a couple of, of, I guess, shortcuts that that provides for the customer more than for us. One of those is that you're buying through Microsoft. So the vendor procurement process you're not trying to deal with 150, 200, 300, whatever it is, small ISVs and having to put each one of them through your procurement process. It's just one place. It's with Microsoft, standard T's and C's. Microsoft take your money. Microsoft pay us. Microsoft handle all the currency conversion and everything else. It's very easy from a a vendor procurement point of view. The other thing is, as a large customer, you're probably spending a great deal of money with the cloud provider of choice, and certainly for the big banks, it's, it's all of them. That money that you spend will earn you a discount. The more you spend, the bigger the discount. So being able to pay for our solutions and and other vendors, but being able to pay for our solutions from what's called the Microsoft Azure consumption commitment means we can actually allow you to spend your Microsoft money 
with us, which increases your total spend with Microsoft, which in turn means you can go back for a bigger discount from them. And it's this kind of you know, rising tide floats all ships type ecosystem where by consuming Mac to buy a vendor solution, you can actually save money overall with the advantages of that simplified vendor management, procurement management, single spend management, and so on. So it's good for finance teams. It's great for procurement teams. IT teams like it because it puts everything in the same central place and they can see it and manage it regardless of which vendor it is they've bought through there. And for us as a partner, it gives us an ability to sell into customers where otherwise we'd still get through the sales process, but it's much quicker and it's much easier to say, you've already partnered with Microsoft, just buy through them. Yeah, and it just reduces friction of that whole process yeah. for an operations manager that wants to buy tech that doesn't normally buy tech. They yeah. hire people, and this gives them a different yeah. channel. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and I'm guessing all the security and all the things that come with Microsoft is is also a benefit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so really, if you look at the the big cloud providers, Microsoft, AWS, Google, they're all, you know, they're all playing in that very large, serious enterprise space. So... Um, it, it would be dishonest of me to suggest that the Microsoft offer is different in some way or, or, or better in some way to the others, but they're they're all selling to you know governments and the CIA and the NSA and MI5 and MI6 and so on. So they they've been through all of that process. And again, in terms of our ability as an ISV to sort of, if you like, stand shoulder to shoulder with Microsoft and go into a deal together, the credibility boost for us is really big. And Microsoft are very open about the fact that the credibility boost for them is equally big because they have really good technical relationships with the CTO, CIO organization. What they don't have is depth in the operations type areas. So by taking in partners, they've always taken this view that it's a it's a stronger together yeah. offer. Uh, and I, I think it's it's proving it's worth for us. And Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Very good. Well, did did we not cover anything at a broad brush that that you wanted to talk about with operations management and IT? I think just apart from the vegetables that are all butter. <laughs> <laughs> Any other good fond memories of your your stay this time, or or other? Uh, actually, I think I should probably stop traveling. So, as you know, we had tornadoes here yesterday. I was actually on holiday in December. I went to Mauritius, and they got hit by a Class Three hurricane while I was there. So, oh, maybe, wow. maybe it's me that's bringing the, yeah, the weather around the world. The wind is following yeah. you around. Yeah, um, but no, it's been it's been really good and good southern hospitality. Well, good. Well, glad to have you. Thanks so much for uh, taking a bit of time to come up here and visit in the in the studio. We we enjoy it. And for everybody watching uh, and listening, please do check out activeops.com. We have a resource hub. You can find articles from Kevin and other members of ActiveOps. You can find white papers and case studies, and we encourage you to visit that. And, and of course, go to AOTV and watch other podcasts as well as other videos that we have. Thanks very much, and, and have a great day. At ActiveOps, we call it Management Process Automation, or MPA. MPA helps managers make better decisions by providing a consistent, easy-to-understand view of capacity and productivity. MPA does the hard work of consolidating information, forecasting and planning, and even gives you visibility of skills and capabilities across your enterprise. Your managers can make decisions based on a complete picture of their operations and then get back to leading. As work progresses, MPA helps managers spot problems early and deal with them proactively, celebrate successes properly, and match resource to workload in real time. By making managers more effective, MPA reduces operational costs. Best of all, the right MPA tools make it possible to deliver all these benefits across global enterprises with thousands of employees. Solutions like Workwear Plus from ActiveOps, 
Workwear Plus builds on our 20 years of experience supporting service operations to give you a 360-degree view of your operations, helping you turn operations management from a guessing game into a game-changing source of efficiency and value. Employees are empowered to manage their days and weeks, feeling accomplished, confident and able to balance work and personal life. Wherever your organisation or customers live and work, ActiveOps is ready to help you deliver world-class service and employee engagement to help your company thrive. ActiveOps. See further. Know more. Move faster.